We're also feeling relatively confident. We have a very good backup system, or at least what we thought was an extremely solid, rock-solid backup system. And then we find out at about four or five hours after the attack that our backup system is completely gone. This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we tried to decipher the latest actions from the Babook ransomware group, which in April announced that they were going to switch gears. The group was apparently no longer enticed by the classic ransomware crime of encrypting an organization's files and then keeping those files locked until receiving a ransom payment. Now, Babook would still do crime, okay? It's it's just that rather than bothering with encryption, Babook said it would focus on pilfering sensitive data from organizations and then threatening to publish that data online unless they received a ransom payment. Think of it as a crime pivot. You're familiar with those, right? I, I mean, they happen routinely in America, like like when a startup amasses obscene wealth by exploiting legal loopholes. And then when America catches up and passes regulations, the startup pivots to either exploiting other legal loopholes or by paying to sway public favor for new laws that were written specifically by highly paid lobbyists to benefit the startups and no one else. It is, I am told in Silicon Valley, the American way. Anyways. Babu claimed that it was done with the encryption game. But in June, a cybersecurity researcher discovered that Babu's ransomware builder was actually uploaded online to VirusTotal, which is puzzling because VirusTotal is an online repository that anti-malware companies constantly look at. And submitting a sample to VirusTotal should pretty much guarantee that every anti-malware company out there will soon detect those samples in their own products. But, of course, not everyone has anti-malware protection on their machines. And in just the past few days, new ransomware that was developed by using Babook's uploaded builder was reportedly seen hitting victims online. Was this Babook's grand plan? Release a ransomware creation tool for free online. Kind of, as the group also said this year that it would do something like open source ransomware as a service, that's a quote. But that, right, that conflicts with Babook's recent switch up of no longer doing any encryption whatsoever. So, as our own Adam Kajawa once said, ransom actors are professional liars and scammers. To believe anything they say is a mistake. We also reported on the ransomware attack that hit Liege, the third largest city in the country of Belgium. The attack disrupted many of Liege's government services, including the collection of passports, driver's licenses, ID cards, and other important documents, the ordering of new documents, uh, appointment services for marriages, nationalities, and others, and the availability of police support for administrative purposes. If a ransomware attack on a city sounds familiar, there's a reason for that. In 2019, the city of Baltimore suffered a serious ransomware attack in which cybercriminals demanded $100,000 in payment, a sum that today looks paltry. The city refused to pay the ransom, and the recovery effort 
according to the city's director of finance at the time, would cost an estimated $10 million. And that wasn't counting for the reported $8 million that the city lost because it was unable to process payments for weeks. In Liege, it is unclear how much the city has been quoted to fix the ransomware, but it has been reported that those responsible for the attack used the Riuk ransomware. And here's something interesting. I don't know how to pronounce Riuk. Is it Riuk? Is it Ryuk? Uh, here's a curveball. Ru-K. Why does this matter? Why am I going on about this? It matters because our main story today is once again about ransomware. And look, it wouldn't be wouldn't be if ransomware operators didn't keep attacking people. But they do. And when they do, we get story after story after story about the day of the attack. Who was attacked? Who attacked them? Did the victim pay? They didn't pay? Are we sure about that? Because if they paid, we should drag them before Congress, which means another story on the day that we do that. Rarely, though, do we get in-depth follow-up stories on ransomware, which is interesting because recovering from a ransomware attack is a story, and it's a long one. According to data from the Ransomware Task Force, ransomware attacks lead to, on average, 21 days of downtime for attack victims. And it takes, again, on average, nine and a half months to fully recover from an attack. What is happening in those nine and a half months? What are the consequences of having your organization derailed for 21 days? And what is all of the work that goes into fixing what went wrong? Today, we're going to learn about the long road to recovery for North Shore School District, a school district of 4,000 staff and 23,000 students spread across 38 sites in Washington State, north of Seattle. In the fall of 2019, North Shore discovered that it was the victim of a ransomware attack. Its data center was comprised of 300 Windows and Linux and black box servers, and its client devices included Windows, Mac, and Chromebook workstations, and iPads. It is a large, complex organization. To help us understand North Shore's attack and its recovery effort, and how the attack changed North Shore's approach to cybersecurity, we're speaking with Ski Kucharowski, a system administrator for North Shore. Ski, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show, David. Yeah, of course. Thank you for being here. So, Ski, let's just get right into it. Before we go into the technical details, the entry methods, the lessons learned, I wanted to start at the beginning. Just tell me about the day that you learned about the ransomware attack. It was an early Saturday morning. I got a text from my manager saying something is up. He had actually gotten a phone call from one of the database administrators saying that there was something wrong with the database server. So I logged on to our VPN. I started poking around. And after a short while, I realized that that server had been hit by ransomware. Okay. It took us several more hours before we realized exactly how much that had been hit by ransomware. One of the reasons we knew it was starting to hit is we had some high CPU utilizations alert the night before when they actually started their attack, but most of us were already asleep by midnight. When you were poking around in there, just help me understand what it is that 
helped you know that it was ransomware? Was it something as simple as everything here is encrypted or, or did you find an encryption note? What, I guess, gave it away? Yes, they leave a single file that is not encrypted saying, hey, you've been hit. Then you'll start seeing, in our case, it was the RUK ransomware. So we would see the files would have the .RUK extension on them that showed that they were all encrypted. It definitely took me a while to figure out exactly how, how much it had spread. If I was to redo this again, the minute I saw the first one, I would have just pulled the power on every single box ASAP. I definitely cost us probably a few boxes by not doing that quickly enough, but you never think you're going to be a hit by ransomware. So that's not usually the first thing you consider when somebody reports the system is not working right. It's hard to, in the moment, realize that it's spreading. And it sounds like exactly like you said that that it did spread further. Describe to me the feeling of just learning, not just that that you had been hit, but also that the attack was growing, it sounds like, as you were diagnosing it. Yeah. So we were shutting off machines while it was actually hitting other machines that seemed to be working okay. So many servers will run mostly in memory while it's encrypting the drive, right? So these servers like okay, they're fine. We don't see any problems immediately with them. We haven't had time to look at the drive, but we ping them and their services are up, so we ignore them. And that was a mistake. We should have immediately hit all the Windows servers and just powered them down. In fact, again, if I was to redo it, I would have just powered down my EXXI servers and figured out how to put things back together afterwards. So you learn about the attack. Describe to me just what... What are the first steps in reacting, right? And I think that's a little different than responding. I just want to know, what are the first things going through your mind? What deadline pressures, right, might you be facing? Yeah, just just the, the reaction, right? Well, the first thing is, I don't know all of the critical services and what's going on. I, I have no idea of everything that's happening, right? Because I run the servers, but the services are owned by other departments and stuff. So I'm not sure what is critical at this time. All I know is that we got to power off all our Windows machines. There is an incredible amount of uncertainty. Most ransomware hits Windows, but some of it doesn't. So we're thinking, oh, I have to power off all my Linux boxes too, or I may have to power off and rebuild all my ESFI servers. At this point in time, we do not know. And so we're, we're trying to figure things out. We're also feeling relatively confident. We have a very good backup system, or at least what we thought was an extremely solid, rock-solid backup system. And then we find out at about four or five hours after the attack that our backup system is completely gone. And it started to real sink in that I'm going to have to rebuild 180 Windows servers and, more importantly, rebuild Active Directory from scratch with all those accounts and groups and everything in it. And that's when it really sunk in. That part was really, really hurt us. What does that work look like? When you know that that's the thing that you're going to have to do to recover, help me understand, is that weeks, months? Is it more than half a year? Is it a huge team, right? Is it something you alone can even feasibly do? So first thing, we're a small team. We have two system admins. That's it. One Windows and one that does everything else. I'm the everything else. (laughs) By the time the Windows admin came in and I were in probably around, I don't know, eight o'clock on Saturday, 
And then we realized that Active Directory is gone. He went absolutely white. You know, there was no blood left in his face. We got extremely fortunate because even though, remember how I said that some services will still be running? So even though the Active Directory services were running, the PowerShell connections and the normal Windows connections were all toasted. You couldn't use them. However, you could still use bog standard LDAP queries. So one of the first things we did is we sucked all the data out of Active Directory before it finally just keeled over dead. So we actually had a list. We had all the objects in LDAP files of here's a SID, and it's associated with this user ID, and that SID is in this group that's associated with that group name. So that made our rebuild much, much easier because we knew all of the users and all of the group names. And not only that, because we had the SIDs associated with those, when we restored files, it would have a SID on it because it didn't have any name to associate it to, but we could say, hey, that SID is really that person. So rather than being something that would take months, we were able to essentially do it in about two, two and a half weeks. So that was the biggest thing is getting a hold of that data out of it. And frankly, it was dumb luck that we managed to sneak in and grab it before it keeled over. You say that you had to grab it before it keeled over. Did it, right? Like, do you know that there's a timeline? Like, this could hit any second. We have to to prioritize grabbing this data? Yeah. The minute the Windows admin went white and realized what it was, we discussed it. And he tried to get to it. He couldn't get to it. I used my tools. I'm a Unix admin. I was able to get to it, and I ran a bunch of scripts and sucked everything out and just stuck it in a file. And then, I don't know, within a short time after that, the system keeled over. One of the reasons this system was running as long as it was, it was a server core system, so it didn't have any of the GUI stuff on it. And I think that was probably the only reason why it stayed running as long as it did before it finally keeled over. So a big shout out to people, run server core if you can. Now, after you've done this, after you're, you're, you're taking the data out, after you have already spoken with your other sysadmin, describe to me how you communicate this to the broader school district, how you communicate it to whoever you have to, right? Whoever's the first person on the list. And I don't know who that person is, right? I actually just, I have no idea, like, when does the principal find out, if at all? Um... <laughs> How do you go about telling people what has happened? Well, I didn't have to deal with most of that stuff. My boss had told me that there's an issue. I told my boss, we not only have an issue, we have a major issue. He then notifies the director of IT. They figure out how to communicate things. Very rapidly, they involve communications because you not only have to communicate to the principal and the teachers and the staff, You have to communicate to parents and students and media. We had TV cameras in our parking lot several times during this, and they're going to want to know. So you have to involve your communications department, and they have to write up communications to go out to various people. Yeah, it really showcases how a ransomware attack is not the sole responsibility of the IT team. Like I say in my talk, there's a federal thing called incident command system. And it basically has the roles that you're going to need to fill. And communications is one of those roles. 
And if you don't fill all those roles, you'll have problems responding to a ransomware attack. We've spoken a little bit, right, about what the attack was doing, how it was spreading, how you immediately reacted. Let's actually take the time now to get into how it happened. How did it happen? So as near as we can tell, after forensics and talking to the FBI and Homeland Security, the attack happened over several months. They were first seen on our network in March of 2019, installing the Emotet malware. What that does is that just collects It just gets access to your servers. Then, according to what we've been told, they auction that off to another group. And so we were put up for bid. That group who won the bid deployed TrickBot, which is basically a key logger to get passwords. Then that group, as soon as it gets enough passwords and gets domain credentials, auctions us off a second time. This time, the Rouquet group won. And then they then install the software and do the attack, which happened on 920 of 2019 at 11 o'clock at night, 11.37 p.m. So it takes place over a long period of time. Yeah, that's, I think, so different than many folks' earlier notions of how a cyber attack even happened, right? I, I think a lot of people previously thought, you get an email, it's got a sketchy attachment, you open it and okay, there it is. That's your that's your virus. You know when we used to worry when, when the when the nomenclature used to just be viruses. Um, and now it isn't that as you described. It's a multi month campaign. It sounds like. Yeah, and not only that, the first two groups basically do it on their own. However, what we've been told is the Rouquet Group is a franchise like McDonald's. There's the Rouquet group that runs the West Coast, the one that does the East Coast, the one that does something in between. And they don't actually pay for access to the Rouquet stuff unless they have a successful attack. So they basically pay a fee back to the people that wrote it every time they have a successful attack. It's fascinating. It's it's organized crime at that point. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times the very start you were thinking, you know, if I wanted to do this over, I would just pull all my Windows machines immediately. Can you? Explain, did the attack affect different machines differently? Like you said, you're still trying to figure out, you know, does this ransomware hit all types of, uh, of machines, all types of OSs? And at the top of this, at the, at the intro, I said there were, there's like a ton of client devices as well. Some of them Mac, some of them Chromebook. So again, to simplify it there, did the attack hit different machines in separate ways or, or did it neglect some entirely? We were very fortunate. Since these attacks are mostly automated, so the groups, Basically, they know if they do 10 attacks, they'll get paid twice or whatever. I mean, they have this down to a science. They only hit Windows machines. What happens after attack, you talk to your insurance, they bring in a incident response company. And even though they make you do a lot of extra work, one of the things they do that's really worthwhile is they say, don't worry about anything but Windows machines, because that's all that these groups hit. We know how they work. So that made it a lot easier. We ended up rebuilding one of our VMware servers before we talked to those people. And now I don't have to worry about 120 odd VMs or, 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 or anything else on our network. We don't have to worry about the Mac clients, which were a majority Mac district or the Chromebooks. All we have to do is worry about the Windows devices. That is, I guess, lucky in a way, you know? <laughs> Yes. So, for example, shortly after we were hit, 
we were hit this September, I'm guessing November, or was it December? Another school district locally to us was hit, and they were all windows, so they were hurting a lot more than we were. When you initially started working with your insurance company, can you just tell me more about that? I, I know that there are so many folks out there that have cyber attack insurance, and that industry seems to be changing. Uh, it seems to be also having to mature because there are so many ransomware attacks that are happening more recently. What was the cyber insurance firm? What were they guiding on? How did they help out? Just help me understand that. Okay, so there's two aspects to the cyber insurance. One is the insurance company. One is the incident response company. So you go off and you pay for cyber insurance, which I think pretty much every company does. <laughs> and they sit there and when you get attacked, you talk to them and they sit there and say, fine, we're going to bring in our experts to make sure you don't get attacked again, because most people get attacked a second time. And we want to make sure they're really off your systems. They would also do any negotiation because they're basically looking at cost of rebuild versus cost of ransom. And if the cost of ransom is a lot less than cost of rebuild, they're going to really want to do that rather than paying for a full rebuild. We have found since the attack, so every year with the insurance company, we have an audit and we have found since the attack that they are really tightening up their audit. They're asking a lot more questions. They want us to do a lot more security-related stuff, where before the ransomware attack, they didn't as much. For example, before, they didn't really care much about MFA. Now they really want us to do MFA everywhere. So that's just one example. The firm they bring in, the incident response firm, their primary purpose is to do forensics to figure out how the attack happened, make sure there's no back doors and make sure the attacker is totally off your network. So as you rebuild it, you aren't going to get hit the second time and raise the insurance firm's costs. I think it's funny that sometimes we hear stories about this. I've heard this as well before, right? That an insurance company is going to come in and they're going to say, okay, is the ransom less to pay than rebuilding the networks? And I, right. And sometimes I think because it's ransomware, because it's an organization facing a crisis, we hear that and we're like, oh my gosh, that sounds, that sounds so cold and calculating. Like what, what about, you know, the, the ideals of not paying a ransom and, and other kinds of ideologies behind it. But then I also think about it, like I got in a car accident a long time ago and the damage to fix my car was more than the car was worth. And so my insurance company said, we're going to write you a check because we're not going to pay more. Like it's, it is, it is an equation for these companies. Yes, it definitely is. And there's no problems with that. What was interesting to us is they are continually paying out ransomware payments and most of them you never hear about. So for example, during the week after our attack, they said they had paid out four ransomware payments in that one week. So it's happening a lot. Yeah, that's got to hit hard. I didn't know that. I'm so shocked at that. I, you know, like you kind of feel that's happening, but to know it and then to, and to know the frequency with which it's happening. And the attacks have changed a lot. When we did it, all they're trying to do is get the ransomware payment and they just encrypt your files. Mm -hmm. If you look at recent attacks, so ours was almost two years ago now, they're exfiltrating data. And they not only encrypt your files, but they threaten your, to, to expose your files to outside people, again, trying to pressure you to pay. Just an extortion threat. Yeah. And, and the one thing that the insurance company did 
make very, very clear is these people are in a business. So if you do pay, they always give up the key and leave you alone because they are in a business and they want to make sure that you can trust them. Because if, if you paid and they didn't give you a key or something, then you wouldn't pay again, right? That's such an interesting idea that somewhere within any cybersecurity insurance firm's database, there's an Excel spreadsheet, I assume, that just has the ransomware gangs. And it's like, reliable? Yes. No. Like, gave the key? Yes. No. Like, there's a trustworthiness index. That's just a... That's a wild thing to know. I I wanted to move on to the actual response, right? Because it sounds like there are kind of a million things happening at once here. And so I wanted to understand how do you even begin to organize and prioritize, right? What your response will be. Okay. Well, first you look at, you start collecting data from the people that own the systems. And in our case, like most ransomware attacks, they picked the time right before a critical service. In our case, it was payroll. Payroll has to run. It is a legal thing. You cannot not pay people. You have to pay them, Mm -hmm. which means four days after the attack, we had to have payroll up and running. That was the most critical thing. Then beyond that, got to get Active Directory up so people can log into things, right? A A whole bunch of services were down. Then we have to work on some of our other things we look at our student record system, because everybody uses it. It's the primary system that people use to interact with the school district. Uh, The parents use it, the students use it, all the teachers use it. So those are probably the biggest three right there. Another thing you will find, and I mentioned this in, in the talk, surprise systems, systems that you don't expect to be a problem or you didn't know about, then when they disappear, you realize how big a problem they are. In our case, our biggest surprise system was our food services system. We had no clue that they did 10,000 meals a day and $30,000 of stuff a day. We had no clue if the students had paid for their meals or haven't paid or that we they owed us money. That one took a long time to get up and working because it was a distributed system and had no backups at all. So you're saying that, I'm just trying to see if I can understand this. I guess your your cafeterias are running on a system where the students are paying into it maybe at the beginning of the year, maybe day by day, but they can bank money, I guess, and then that... Sure, sure. A parent can bank money in there and then the students use it up. Exactly right. And not only that, that system is used for reports to the federal government for free and reduced lunches. And now we couldn't generate those reports. So that's another loss of income because we get refunded for those. We actually had two or three of them pop up, but they definitely pop up. And I'm guessing pretty much any organization will have some of these systems that kind of run underneath the radar. Yeah. When I hear you talk about this, how you're uncovering things, right? How you're finding things. It sounds like there are so many opportunities where you can kind of go down a rabbit hole, right? Oh, we have this problem. We have to solve this. This goes deeper than we thought. And so I wanted to ask, how are you even like building a team of people to address all of these issues? First, very quickly, by the end of the first day, we realized that we needed help. Actually, midway through the first day. Like I say, relationships were the most critical thing. We have a relationship with a local hosting firm. They routinely done little jobs for us that we don't have time to do or they have expertise in. We call them up. 
they gave us five essentially full-time experience system admins. We went from two to five. That's huge. Yeah, a huge increase. It, 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 it tripled our number of system admins, essentially. Other school districts also offered up system admin help. So by the middle of the second day, we're saying, okay, how do we manage all these people? And that's where you need a project manager who starts collecting, okay, what's the most critical system? What are the roadblocks to getting it up and running? And one of the things you need to do is to figure out a way to make sure you are not always going through the choke points of your system admin to actually know your services and systems the best. So one thing that the executive director did that was incredibly smart is he took our student record system, what was comprised of 27 of our Windows servers, and said, we're going to move it to a SaaS solution. So one of our big, most critical systems, all of a sudden, the system admins were not involved anymore. We had a vendor that we had a good relationship with. They dropped everything. And what is normally a six-month migration, they did it in six days. But the most critical part is it didn't have to go through the system admin choke point. And that was a whole different group, and they could just work on it on their own, right? And so anything that you can push off onto different groups, that is one of the best ways that you can get things up to speed quicker. Another example is with the point of sale system that I've mentioned. We didn't have the resources to bring that up really quick. We had other more critical priorities, even though that rapidly became a priority. But the people who ran it said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to put in a paper system temporarily. That gave us some breathing room. And they said, okay, there's only going to be three different types of lunches instead of having a student pick whatever they wanted for lunch. You get one of these three choices and we could just mark on a paper, you know, how many of each choice were sold each day. So again, relationships were absolutely critical in being able to recover as fast as we did. With these, uh, like you said, these relationships, these vendors you work with, help me understand how those conversations are going. Are, are they as simple as, hey, we need some help, you know, because I could see a company that is enormous and that they have countless vendors and contractors that they work with. And because they have so many, they don't have a relationship where they can say, hey, we need help. And therefore, the, the result is, hey, you get you get five sysadmins. I think that the result will be like, well, you know, we want to help you, but we've got we've got other clients. And so it sounds a bit like a miracle, like that, that so many people are coming together to really, really help each other out here. And so I wanted to understand how do those conversations go? Well, you pretty much said it. I called up my contact at the <laughs> vendor that provides us the system admin that we've just been hit. We need anybody you can send us. And we were fortunate in a couple of ways. One is I had a really good relationship with the owner of the company. He had been on site a couple of times. He actually lived in the school district. So his kids went to our schools. That helps a lot. <laughs> And I can't emphasize that enough. For example, we had a lot of issues getting good quality support out of Microsoft, but we had a parent in the district who was a senior person at Microsoft, and we could call the parent and say, I need help. He made sure we got help. So again, relationships with, with people who work at the other companies and the ISP company, he pretty much pulled a lot of people off whatever they were doing and let us have them for several weeks. I also know that you've spoken before that responding, recovering from a, from a ransomware attack, that what 
what you all went through, that there were even really simple logistical matters that had to be solved because people are working around the clock. And some of those things are as simple as like, how do people get fed? Can you just talk to me about that? Yeah. So you show up like eight o'clock on Saturday, everybody's in the office. And all of a sudden, you've got a lot of people who can't help technically, but want to help. In our case, we have instructional staff, we have administrative staff. And one of the things you need to do with all these people is give them jobs that they can do. So for example, going out and shutting off all the Windows PCs everywhere in the district, and then making sure we get fed. We had one of our senior IT management people would bring in home-cooked meals all the time, which is a much better than a pizza. I mean, pizzas are great, but a home-cooked meal is really nice because you're working there. And as a system admin, you want to work until you fix it. Unfortunately, a ransomware attack is a marathon. So another thing our management did was send us home at midnight every night. You have to get some rest because tired people make a lot more mistakes than non-tired people. And you not only need that type of logistics, you need logistics for space. Where are you going to put all these extra system admins to show up, all these helpers? How are you going to create a space where your Windows admin, who has to be on the phone with Microsoft literally almost around the clock, he needs a separate office so he can talk on the phone while he's typing away, right? Other people will need private areas where they can work undisturbed to get something done. So there's an incredible amount of logistics that's happening. Uh, You have to keep track of every single expense for the insurance claim. It sounds like just a ton. Like that's the best way I can, like, like you said, it's a marathon. And to that point, when would you say, if you would say, that you fully, quote unquote, recovered from the attack? We were about 80, 85% recovered by two months. One of the things that we did that maybe other companies didn't do is we only recovered stuff that people asked for. We found there were lots and lots of files on the file server that I've never recovered and I never will because it's been almost 18 months. It's been over 18 months and nobody's asked for them. I said, great. Um, (laughs) There were definitely a couple of services that people said, you know, we really don't need those. We can Mm -hmm. live without them. Wonderful, right? (laughs) So we are totally recovered now in that we've Probably within, I'm guessing, six to nine months, we had everything brought back that people really wanted. And we felt pretty confident that they wouldn't be asking for something that they had had previous to the ransomware attack. And a lot of that is because your company's got these cycles, right? And some people only touch certain data once every three months, maybe quarter end or or at grading period times. And so now it's been 18 months, we're pretty sure that all that old data that's that's still encrypted or I've got old backups of, they aren't going to ever go back to. As you said, it's been more than 18 months, right? Since the attack. And I have two questions that I, that I wanted to ask about specifically security, like awareness and security education. And one of them is, you know, if looking in hindsight, is there something that you feel that you should have been paying attention to that maybe you didn't? And similarly, are there things that you were paying attention to that didn't really help in the recovery effort? So the biggest thing for us is we're severely understaffed and security was never a priority, even though we wanted to. 
And there are certain things that we do now that we definitely wanted to do before the attack, but we never had the emphasis to have to spend the time on them. We always had too many other things to do. After the attack, it's been much better in that if we say this is a security risk, we will generally get the time to fix it, which is really nice. In fact, before the attack, we had an open requisition for a network security engineer that we were not allowed to fill. That position has now been filled, and that engineer is doing a wonderful job of making sure that we dot all our I's and cross all our T's when we bring up new services and keep existing services running. So that's probably the biggest thing is that such things like MFA, we knew about it, we wanted to implement it, it was never made a priority. Now it's being made a priority and we're going to be implementing it really soon for everybody in the district. That makes sense. It sounds like you said, it's, it's a function of how strapped you folks were, that you knew there were things to implement, but you couldn't get there because they weren't considered priorities. I also wanted to ask if the school district, if staff, if administrators, if teachers, maybe even parents, right? I, I don't know how involved parents are in in like the cybersecurity lessons of a, of a school, of their school district. But the question is, do all of you think about security education in a different way, which is to say, is everyone a little more savvy now because of the ransomware attack? I would think so. We're definitely doing phishing email practice trainings. People are definitely much more aware of it when I talk with some of the teachers and staff. And if you bring up security in a meeting, people will listen to you rather than say, we don't have time for it. Yeah, that's what you hope for, right? <laughs> Has there been any change in the type of testing that goes out? Like you said, you're doing phishing tests. Has there been an introduction to a new lesson? Like if you weren't doing phishing tests and now you are, I guess something that's been added. It sounds like you're adding MFA, which is, which is one of those things. Another thing that we've done is we've separated out all of our privileged accounts from our normal accounts. So we use something, what we call a Dash SU for super user. So I've got two accounts. One is my Dash SU account. I use that for any privileged access to do anything. My normal account that I use for email, I don't use for any privileged access on any of our services. That would have saved us a lot because that would have really slowed them down from getting on our network and being able to get a hold of a domain admin password. They may still have gotten it, but it would have taken them much, much longer. The other thing that we've done is we've implemented a much more robust centralized login system and SIEM system that is now catching things that are happening on our network. And we love it because it'll tell us you're having a shell sock attack, for example, and then we can go check into it and make sure, okay, I've patched that server, it's resisting the attack, I'm okay. So I feel much more confident that we would catch an Emotet infection way before it got to the point that they managed to launch a ransomware attack. That resonates so much with, I think, what all of cybersecurity, the cybersecurity community is trying to get across, right? Which is the way to stop a ransomware attack is to stop the things that lead to one, the precursors. And it's good to hear that that's, that's being watched. I wanted to wrap up here and mention that you are one of the very few people, I think, who are willing to go into so much detail about how you and about how your school district responded to a ransomware attack. And this is, you know, anecdotal, but like I've been trying. 
I, I've been like trying to find someone who's been hit with an attack and just to understand the anatomy of it, understand the recovery, because it feels like a closely held secret. Uh, and I can kind of understand why, but I wanted to ask you, why do you think so many ransomware victims are shy to tell their story? And why are you, by contrast, pretty open to sharing this information? I'm not going to comment on why other victims are shy. I'm sure they have legal reasons or something. <laughs> as far as us, it's mostly due to our management at the school district who really believes in the quotes on my presentation that the only mistake in life is a lesson not learned. And at the end, the quote is, without questions, there is no learning. So I've given this talk at the LISA conference and at the ACPE conference because that's how we teach each other is by explaining this to other people. And that's how we learn. And they firmly believe that being part of a school district. I don't think I could agree more. That sounds very wise and a good direction to take. With that, Ski, I just wanted to thank you for being on today's show. Thank you very much, David. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we talk about critical infrastructure security. Following two targeted attacks on water treatment facilities in the United States and the unrelated ransomware attacks on Colonial Pipeline, JBS, and Ireland's health service executive, we learn after speaking with Leslie Carhart that maybe the sky isn't falling. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.